This is an unusual passage that often gets overlooked. Ransom is talking to Huyoy, the Harasa, and Huyoy says, I will tell you a day in my life that has shaped me, such a day as comes only once, like love. When I was young, not much more than a cub, when I went far, far up the handermint to the highland where stars shine at midday, and even water is cold, a great waterfall I climbed. I stood on the shore of Balki the Pool, which is a place of most awe in all worlds. The walls of it go up forever and ever, and a huge and holy images are cut in them, the work of old times. There is the fall called the Mountain of Water. Because I stood there alone, Meleldil and I, my heart has been higher, my song deeper all these days. That was the best drink save one. And then Ransom says, which one, says Ransom? Death itself, the day I drink and go to Meleldil. I normally don't notice that passage because it's not action, it's not a plot point, but yeah, Lewis, I wrote a whole book called Into the Region of Awe about Lewis' interest in Christian mysticism. And here on Mars, Hoyoy is saying, I, I climbed up to this place. It was midnight, it was starry, full of stars at midday. And he had some kind of a mystical encounter with Meleldil. And he says, ever since then, my, my heart has been higher. Everything about my life is at more significance and the only thing better will be the day that i go see meleldil personally it's almost like saint paul saying for me to live as christ and to die is gain so we have this stoat-like creature on out of the silent planet this harasa who actually has a kind of mystical connection to his creator i've passed over that passage many times but the last time i was working on mysticism it really jumped out he even uses the word awe which for Lewis is a, a code word for some kind of direct encounter with the divine. Mm -hmm. Into the region of awe, he uses that phrase in his, in his memoir, Surprised by Joy, as a place where you go when you want to go far from ideas about God, feelings about God, to a direct encounter with God. I was pointing out last time that the Christian life is simply a process of having your natural self changed into a Christ self. Welcome to the Inklings Variety Hour, where fans and scholars of C.S. Lewis, J.R.R. Tolkien, Charles Williams, Owen Barfield, and others discuss their works and lives. I'm Chris Pipkin, Associate Professor of English at Emmanuel College, and with me I have none other than Dr. David C. Downing. David is the co-director with his wife, Crystal, of the Marion E. Wade Center at Wheaton College. He is the author of four award-winning books on C.S. Lewis, Planets in Peril, about the Ransom Trilogy, the Most Reluctant Convert, Into the Region of Awe, Mysticism in C.S. Lewis, and Into the Wardrobe, C.S. Lewis, and the Narnia Chronicles, as well as a number of others, including fiction. Most of our listeners have probably, of course, heard the Wade Center's excellent podcast. On the off chance you haven't, I'll link to it in the show notes. It is well worth listening to. Dr. Downing, it is an honor to have you on the Inklings Variety Hour. Thank you. I'm glad to join you. We've just gone through Out of the Silent Planet on our on our show, and my producer, you, Logan. You left me nothing left to say then, apparently. 
Oh yeah, no, clearly in three episodes, it's all been taken care of, right? Right, uh, exactly. Yeah. Close uh, the book on that. The oh, uh, it's so hard to do these works justice. No matter right. how you know how many episodes we do on a single work, I think we did like. I think we did like 12 until we have faces at least, but there's oh. always more to say, but uh, well, yeah, that novel deserves at least 14. I think. I think oh my goodness. Like at there. least. Yeah. And, and this, this too, there, there was so much more that we could have said, and which is part of why I'm so glad to have you on to bring your own perspective. Our, our producer Logan had the temerity to reach out to David who wrote the book on the ransom space trilogy planets in peril. When it came out in 1992, this was the first serious scholarly study of Lewis' space trilogy to be published by a major university press. I've found it, am finding it, very accessible as well as erudite. It's it's just really enjoyable to read. This this obviously came out quite some time ago, and I, right. I, I'd love to talk about some of your more, more recent books as well. Um, well, that's what's amazing is I wrote it when I was in sixth grade, which makes <laughs> more of an achievement than you might think otherwise. Yeah. Yeah, no kidding. No kidding. Wow. What 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 moved you to to write it in the first place? Well, I didn't read C.S. Lewis growing up, not even the Narnia Chronicles. I came from a conservative Christian home and I didn't discover Narnia until college and I loved the Narnia Chronicles. I wrote to my mom and said, "Why did you give me these great Christian books when I was growing up?" And she said, "Well, Lewis, he drank and he smoked and he was an Anglican. So I just uh. wasn't sure if he would be a good influence on you. So that was, but actually before I read the Narnia Chronicles, I was taking a freshman seminar on sci-fi and fantasy. And the professor said, one of the books is out of print. Does anybody have an, an, another idea for a book we could put in? And uh, this 18 year old classmate of mine said, how about Paralander by C.S. Lewis? And the professor had never heard of it and I'd never heard of it. And so we said, sure, let's go with it. And it was very transformative for me. My upbringing was by good hearted people, but they were accustomed to simple answers and they were comfortable with simple answers. And I was struggling with the problem of evil and what does the fall really mean and what is original sin? And this book, I liked sci-fi, I liked Jules Verne and H.G. Wells, but here's a serious novel about interplanetary travel that also wants to talk about the nature of sin, the origins of sin, what would happen on another planet if Adam and Eve didn't listen to the serpent. And so it, I think if you had to name, Lewis said that Fantasties by George MacDonald baptized his imagination. And for me, Paralandra was the novel that baptized my imagination. Mm. I said the horizons for being a Christian are much broader than I thought, much more intellectually satisfying and much more plausible and expansive than the ideas I'd grown up with. So I read Paralander, I read the rest of the trilogy, I read Narnia, I read Mere Christianity. My goal was to read everything by C.S. Lewis as an undergrad. I got slowed down by Pilgrim's Regress. It's very allegorical and there's Greek and there's Latin and there's a lot of references to modernist writers that I didn't know about. I made up for that about a decade ago. In 2014, I published a book called Pilgrim's Regress, the Wade Annotated Edition. And I looked up the French and the German and the Latin and the Greek, and I looked up all the figures. And uh, people have told me, I could never get through that book until I read your annotated edition. And so I'm glad oh, that I'm cool. providing a service 
I like to say they also serve who only annotate. Kind of a rip off <laughs> built in there. So I, I read them. I love them. When I went to graduate school, my PhD at UCLA was on American literature. And I talked to my advisor and I said, you know, we have this certain canon of authors. You can talk about D.H. Lawrence and Virginia Woolf and H.G. Wells, but why does why can't we talk about C.S. Lewis as a serious literary figure? And he said, well, Lewis was a Christian, which is strike one, and he was a popularizer. You know, science fiction and fantasy don't have any prestige. And so he said, what I want you to do after you graduate from UCLA is write a book explaining why the Ransom Trilogy is serious fiction. It's literary fiction, not just holiday fiction. And so it took me a long time to get back to his challenge, but eventually I did the research and I wrote the book trying to prove, I think I was successful in that a lot of college syllabi and seminary syllabi have the Ransom Trilogy, or one of the three, even at non-Christian colleges. So that was the original challenge was to get people past the idea that there's a fairly limited canon of British, modern British authors, and you couldn't expand beyond that. And I wanted to expand the canon a little bit. That's that's great. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like I, I certainly, you know, at my Christian college that I went, I went to Grove City in, in Pennsylvania and, yeah. and we definitely did the space trilogy there as well. And that was in the early 2000s or, or, or so. But uh, well, I had trouble getting it published. I sent it around and there was, especially in the 70s and 80s and 90s, there were literally authors that you could name on one hand that were canonical and go crazy with D.H. Lawrence, Virginia Woolf, James Joyce, Auden. But other ones, they were just beyond the pale. Now things have gone the other way. Now the canon is so expanded mm -hmm. that uh, almost anything that somebody finds interesting, they can write a dissertation about. Yeah. I submitted it to UMass Press. And one reader said, I'm really sympathetic. This is an interesting project. Maybe we need to think more seriously about Lewis as a literary figure. The other reader wrote a nine-page rebuttal saying, please don't publish this book. Oh, man. He was gullible. He was simplistic. He was a black and white thinker. He's not a serious literary figure. If, if somebody writes a book about Lewis, it should mainly be to prove how inadequate he was and how sub-literary he was. Oh, gosh. I got the exact wrong idea. So yeah. I wrote a long letter to the publishers saying, this is exactly why we need to look at Lewis. People dismiss him without looking at him. And the editor said, we find your defense more eloquent than the original critic. And the editors have told me that since this was published in 1992, it's the best-selling and longest-selling book in their catalog. This one reader said, that's great. Yeah. This one reader said, nobody's going to read this book. Nobody cares about C.S. Lewis, especially <laughs> somebody, you know, respects and defends C.S. Lewis. <laughs> so it was amazing to me. I'm glad the editor was more open-minded and felt like, yeah, there's something substantial here that we should all look into. And uh, Lewis's trilogy has certainly proven it stood up through the test of time. It was written in 1938. And here we are, you know, 90 years later, still talking about issues that he was discussing seriously in before World War II. Yeah, yeah. That's what's amazing about Lewis is most of us would like to have one career in which we're celebrated as a writer, like J.K. Rowling, children's writer. We're not looking right. for a serious scholarship from her. 
somebody else, great scholar, E.M.W. Tilliard, great literary scholar. Well, Lewis outdid Tilliard as a literary scholar. Theological fantasies, screw tape letters, great divorce. Nobody's ever been able to imitate those successfully. But then also his lay theologian, Miracles, Mere Christianity, The Problem of Pain. In a way, it was kind of selfish of him to take up so many niches. I know. It's like these famous performers. They win a Grammy and an Oscar and a, you know, a, mm-hmm. a Tony Award. It's kind of like, stay in your lane, girl. You know, gives the rest of us a room to achieve something. But yeah, yeah. he definitely was. He was. Uh, the funny thing is he didn't even try to be a, a, a serious writer other than his scholarship. He thought of himself as an English professor. And someone invited him to write Problem of Pain. He was invited to give the lectures, the broadcast talks, which became Mere Christianity. He fiddled around with Narnia Chronicles in the late 30s when he actually had children in his home who'd left London because of the London Blitz. And it took him 10 years to get back to it. So it's it's a little discouraging for the rest of us to have this guy kind of with his left hand or on the backswing. He's creating this classic literature that we would be proud to consider, you know, the best thing we ever wrote in our in our careers. Yep. Yep. Yeah, this is his first try, right? This yeah. is his first foray into, right, you know, fiction other than uh, unless you count uh, the Pilgrim's Regress, right? And yeah, it's amazing. It's yeah, it's it's I mean, when he really really buckled down and tried, he produces Till We Have Faces, right, which right, is right. a masterpiece, right? But this right. is probably easily one of the top 5 sci-fi, you know, pieces or novel of ideas as well that, that i've that i've read right and it's it's just yeah it's it's brilliant and there's so much that resonates with me well two things about lewis one is his creative energy wasn't unleashed until he became a christian in the 20s he wrote a cycle of poems called the spirits in prison and then he wrote dimer a narrative poem about a a young man who you know encounters a monster he was trying to, he was trying to write mythically but he didn't have any real worldview that he loved and wanted to defend and wanted to expand upon. And so his writings from the 20s are pretty slender. He was pushing 30 before he wrote something serious. He met Tolkien and Tolkien said, hey, this dying God myth. Lewis thought that that was an argument against Christianity. We have Balder who dies in Norse mythology. We have Osiris in Egyptian mythology. We have Jesus in you know, Judeo-Christian and Tolkien said, well, let me reframe that for you. Maybe all these myths of the dying God are this collective human intuition of the need for redemption from above. But nobody looks for the tomb of Osiris. Nobody looks for where Balder might be buried. But in, for Jesus, he, this all entered into history. As Lewis said, myth became fact. And that reframing was very liberating from Lewis. Suddenly, his love of myth and fantasy became authentic. It wasn't an escape from reality. It was actually a a deeper way to understand reality. Ironically, when they became friends in the late 20s, Lewis was very, I mean, Tolkien was very transformative on Lewis's career. Once he became a Christian, he had this overflowing enthusiasm and wanted to defend and explain the faith that lasted the rest of his life. Whereas Tolkien was kind of tinkering with The Hobbit, kind of tinkering with Lord of the Rings. And Lewis said, you've got to get this stuff published. You've got to finish it and send it to a publisher. Tolkien considered these things kind of a hobby or stories for his children. And of course, The Hobbit first became a bestseller and then Lord of the Rings became an international bestseller. 
So at one time I was doing a radio interview and I said, if it wasn't for Tolkien, we might have never heard of Lewis because he might not have become a Christian. But if it wasn't for Lewis, we might never have heard of Tolkien because he might not have bothered to submit his works. And the interviewer said, yeah. yes, and if it wasn't for Lewis and Tolkien, we would have never heard of you. <laughs> I said, well, that's kind of uncalled for, you know, but it is still true. Uh, they have an amazing syncretistic dynamic between the two of them. They brought out the best in each other. Yeah, yeah, there's a real, yeah, there's there's just a, a real holy creative energy that's sort yeah. of sort of happening there between the two of them that that really has inspired generations of, right. of right. writers and scholars who who other you know this this is why i became a medievalist right because i wanted to follow in the footsteps of of lewis and tolkien right um, right. right i mean it's it's it, it can the influence continues right right i get even, i get even their scholarly works when you go to graduate school as you have when i was at ucla they they said read Tolkien's on fairy stories, read Beowulf and the monsters of the critics, read Preface to Paradise Lost, read Discarded Image. They didn't care about either one of their Christian faith. They were just so impressed by their their literary and scholarly insights. So they were very unique individuals in that they made a serious impact yeah. upon scholarly studies in their field. But then they also wrote this wonderful Christian fiction kind of as a as a holiday or as an afterthought yeah 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 i mean it's it's good scholarship i i still return to it oh, and and part of it is probably my penchant for lewis and tolkien but part of it yeah. also is that in that generation they wrote things to be read and enjoyed right 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 clear you know clear scholarship that is that is enjoyable Well, it's kind of ironic because in their generation, they both wrote essays trying to defend fantasy. The whole thing with modernism is it's got to be realistic and present day, and it's got to have psychological depth. And Lewis said, why is it that some 800-page novel about some neurotic guy living in a flat in London is considered authentic, whereas space travel or time travel is considered shallow? And ironically, culture has almost gone the other direction. Right now, DC and Marvel comics dominate people's minds and movies, and they, yes. neither one of them would ever feel like they had to write a defense of fantasy now. I think they would yeah. have to write a defense of good fantasy versus, you know, forgettable fantasy. Yeah, yeah, a defense of standards or, right. or literary standards. Yeah, yeah, we learn, you know, when we learn the lessons we learned them too well yeah and, uh, and then go in the opposite direction but but yeah Lewis uh, said he was quoting martin luther saying that culture is like a drunk man on a donkey he's afraid of falling off on the left side to overreaction and falls off on the right side and i'm afraid we're still still dealing with a drunk man on the donkey syndrome yes dr lewis said that yeah, or in in the screw tape letters where he says they're like on on a boat and they're they're always running to the side which is already gone right. under, right? right. But uh, yeah. So keeping on Tolkien and Lewis, this this book was the result of a bet or a coin toss between the two of them because they wanted to write more books that they right. of the kind that they liked. Right. What are what are some of the do, do you see any other influences from Tolkien other than that initial desire to write the kind of thing that they both liked present in the in the book, especially in Out of the Silent Planet. Right. 
Well, I don't like the words bet or wager because it was more of an agreement. They were just chatting. It was a casual agreement. And Lewis ripped off out of the silent planet in a few weeks and Tolkien started The Lost Road, which he never finished. He was trying to do time travel. There's a reason I think that Tolkien couldn't finish that kind of fantasy. There's a scholar named Farrah Mendelssohn who says that most fantasy is either portal fantasy where you start in our world and go through a rabbit hole or a, a wardrobe and go to a secondary imaginative world. There's also intrusion fantasy where something about the imaginative world or the world of wonder breaks into earth like King Kong or aliens. And there's also the immersion fantasy where you just start out the very first sentence, you are in an alternate reality. You're in a fantasy world. In a hole in the ground, there lived the Hobbit. And the fourth kind is the dream fantasy like George MacDonald, where it has some realistic elements and some fantasy elements, and they're blended in a very unusual way. And you can't really say, well, that part is the real world and that part is the, the world of marvels. I think the reason that Tolkien couldn't finish The Lost Road or The Notion Club Papers, which are both time travel stories, is his imagination didn't want to write portal fantasies. He didn't want to start in our world. So both The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings, he just jumps in. There's hobbits, there's wizards, there's dragons. He never says somebody took a pill or fell down a hole or went through a mirror. And so I think there's a reason that their agreement didn't work is that he just wasn't really a, ironically, Lord of the Rings is a kind of, Lord of the Rings is a kind of time travel. There's no machines, there's no industry, there's no advanced industrialism. There's only, in all of the Lord of the Rings, there's only one reference to modern technology. Gandalf makes a fireworks display and this big dragon goes whizzing in front of all of them. And he says it whizzed in front of them like a freight train. And uh. I was kind of shocked because Tolkien was very careful not to make his secondary world appeal to our primary world. Lewis was totally comfortable with that. He says, if you've ever seen, seen men drinking tea out of tin cups by the railway, you'll understand what I'm saying when I talk about these giants. First of all, I've never seen men drinking tea out of tin cups. I've been to, I've been to England a dozen times. But Lewis doesn't mind interrupting your imaginative excursion by making references to this world, whereas Tolkien resolutely wanted to stay in the world of his sub-creation. God created our primary world, but if we want to honor God as creators, we create a secondary world. He doesn't quote Shakespeare. He doesn't quote Milton. He doesn't make reference to contemporary events. Other than the freight train, I think he even changed tobacco. Somebody said, well, tobacco was discovered in the new world. And so he changed it to pipe weed. And he also mentioned picking tomatoes. And they said, well, those were also discovered in the new world. And so he changed it to turnips. He really wanted, Tolkien wanted you to get lost in the world of the Shire and Middle Earth and not be dragged back to our world. Uh, that's part of the reason he didn't like Narnia is because Narnia, here's a fawn from classical mythology. Here's a dragon. Here's a reference to, you know, a cab horse in London. And Tolkien didn't like that mishmash of worlds or mythologies. So they were both wonderful and, you know, universally acclaimed but they had very different starting point for writing fantasy. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Lewis is is far more, and and I think you point this out in in in, in Planets in Peril as well. Lewis is far more medieval in the way he that was. he composes. He right. he takes all 
like everything is on the table, right? And he right. takes it and, and works it all together into something, right? And and Tolkien is kind of romanticist in his in his purity or his desire for you know this this is northern and therefore you know this right. is these are just sorts of creatures we need to have or maybe that's the linguist or the philologist in him well yeah you're right he loved teutonic mythology teutonic linguistics he went back and changed names the character of butterbur was originally barnabas butterbur but that's oh. a biblical name and so he had to go back and take out names that reminded you of the bible yeah so yeah he was very committed to the idea where i'm going to extend and amplify Norse mythology. I'm going to create a legendarium for England, but he didn't want to pick and choose. I think his his reading in general, his imagination in general, was much more channeled than Lewis. Lewis could read some classical stuff and then some European stuff and then some modern science fiction and then the Bible, of course. And he was very syncretistic where Tolkien was much more, I want to create this Teutonic atmosphere and I'm going to stay with that for 1,500 pages. I'm not going to make you think of the Bible or Shakespeare or modern technology. Ironically, they had very different approaches, but they both succeeded admirably. I love the fact that there's no one recipe for writing great fantasy. It depends upon your interest and your genius, how, they, how you turn that into a, a, a permanently important piece of writing. Yeah, Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, speaking of northernness and Norse mythology, one of the connections that you make in, in Planets in Peril is is Lewis's association with northernness. This possibly is what I enjoy so much about Malacandra. Right. I feel like it's it's just one of the most evocative places in all of science right. fiction. Right. Is that possibly a key to part of the reason why Tolkien did like Out of the Silent Planet as opposed to like the Narnia stuff or... He did. He defended it to a publisher. He already had his publisher from The Hobbit, and Lewis was having trouble placing Out of Silent Planet. Originally, Ransom's name was Unwin, and Lewis gave it to Unwin and Allen, but he said, well, they're going to think I'm sucking up to them if my character's name is Unwin. And then he met a creature named Allen, you know, so he changed it to Ransom, which is actually a better name. <laughs> Talking about a really great consulting reader essay about Out of the Silent Planet, and I think you're exactly right. In Out of the Sign of the Planet, he can see Lewis doing world building. We're going to go to a different world, different landscape, different gravity, different creatures, different languages. And this is one of the books of Lewis's that, that Tolkien appreciated the most. At the end of Out of the Sign of the Planet, the writer Lewis, in, in air quotes, says, I showed this to Ransom and said, how did I do in capturing your, your adventures? And Ransom said, well, you make it sound like there was only one kind of a rasa, and you don't talk about. And Diana Glyer speculates correctly, I think, a really important scholar on the Inklings, that the ransom character it was actually Tolkien. He gave it to Tolkien, and Tolkien said, "Really, you only have one kind of a rasa. You only have this landscape. What about?" And he went back and tried to. Lewis went back and tried to enrich the experience of being on an entire planet, and I'm pretty sure that was. Tolkien's influence on let's let's be a really good world builder. Lewis wasn't nearly committed to creating languages as Tolkien was. As, as you know, far before he published, from World War I on, Tolkien was inventing languages, their vocabulary, their conjugations, their grammar. 
And sometimes he would decide that one word wasn't the right word. And we'd go back and have to make dozens of corrections once he changed one word. So yeah, I, I do believe that's part of the reason. The, uh, there's a good book by Holly Ardway on Tolkien's modern reading that says that the Tolkien's distaste for Narnia has been overstated. It's based on one letter where he says it's outside my sympathies. The main problem was this mixed mythologies. But he did give uh, copies of the Narnia Chronicles, the whole box set, to his granddaughter. And I think if you really hated something, you wouldn't pick it out as a gift for you know, a right. beloved person. So Holly Ordway makes a good case that Tolkien's distaste for the Narnia Chronicles has been overstated. He didn't literally say it's bad. He just said it's outside my, my sympathies. And Tolkien yeah. had much narrower taste than Lewis. Lewis could pick yeah. up anything and enjoy it. Tolkien, you could almost guess beforehand, is he going to enjoy this book or reject this book? Right. And in, in general, he did want everything to be have a Teutonic flavor to it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Tolkien was funny that way, it seems. I mean, he, there are so many things, like whether it's Charles Williams or the right. works of George MacDonald, that like at one point he'll be for it, and at another point, it seems like he's really not. And it's, right. and it's hard to yeah figure out what he really thought about. Okay, yeah, he's hard to figure out. He uh, he said in several places he didn't like George MacDonald, but he admitted he liked him as a kid. Yeah. And one of the elements, he said he didn't like the idea of these vulnerable feet of the goblins in the Princess and Curdy. Mm -hmm. You know, they're like invulnerable. They're like orcs. But if you step on their foot or stab their foot, that really hurts. He thought that was kind of a, a arbitrary feature. But then when you get to Lord of the Rings, this mountain troll is about to break into the Hall of Records. They're all trapped there. And Boromir picks up a sword and tries to cut off the arm of this great hideous creature. And it bounces out of his hands onto the floor. But then Frodo has a little dagger and he goes up and stabs the troll's foot. Ha, ha, ha. Black that's butt awesome. blood. And suddenly yeah. the troll goes, ow, ow, and he pulls his foot back. Oh, uh, that's great. I think consciously or unconsciously, that's a little tricky. Right. Donald, you know, these hideous, yeah. feet, vulnerable feet. I hadn't made that connection before. Yeah. And, and then like, there are also the flapping goblin feet in, right. you know, in, in the Hobbit, which right. are toeless, I assume if they're right. flapping, right. right. Like the, like those in the, yeah. And, and of course, one of his early poems was called goblin feet. Right. Um, right. Although like maybe a different kind of goblin feet, but yeah, it's, 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 it's strange. Well, he loved the whole world of wonder and adventure and fantasy Tolkien did. And so sometimes I think subconsciously he might reject the storyline, but things are getting in there. I think part of the reason he, McDonald made it seem too much like his stories were for children. He's often kind of preachy, like, no, you should obey your mother. And he didn't like that didacticism. In Tolkien, you have to figure out on your own, oh, that's heroism, that's bravery, that's treachery, that's selfishness. He doesn't really preach to you. And I think that preaching to the reader part in MacDonald really bothered Tolkien. There's hardly a passage in all of Lord of the Rings or Hobbit which says, and dear reader, this is how you should live your life. Right. Yeah. read this episode. Yeah. So I, I think he really wanted to be standalone without without being didactic in relation to the reader. So Lewis, this book grew up as as did, you know, 
Lord of the Rings is so many of these books. Uh, this book grew up being read right. at Inklings meetings. Do you have any sense of whether any of the other Inklings, I mean, is this just something we can never know, but is are there traces of any other influence from any of the other Inklings or Barfield or? Well, Tolkien, he loved Barfield's idea of ancient unities in the, for ancient people's breath and wind and spirit were all the same thing. So if you breathe your last, that means you died. Or if you knock the wind out of somebody, even in Greek and Hebrew and Latin, you can go back to the roots, ruah and pneuma and spear, S-P-I-R. And expiration can mean either you, you breathed out or it can mean you died. And talking, I mean, the, Barfield said, in the old days, the literal and the metaphorical were all joined. And only as we got more abstract and advanced, do we say, well, that's breathing, that's the weather, and that's your life. And he, I, in fact, he said that Barfield's insights in poetic diction changed his whole view of, of language. But he wasn't one to make references to the other Inklings. Some people, oh, he did admit that Treebeard's voice, this booming voice, was based on Lewis. Lewis mm -hmm. had this great booming voice, and Treebeard says, there now, not so hasty, not so hasty. And he emphasizes his booming voice. In general, he didn't want to plant those kind of allusions to his fellow Inklings because he wanted it to be a secondary world that was totally a subcreation, that was totally independent. Lewis yeah. drags in, he mentions Barfield, ancient unities and that hideous strength. Mm -hmm. He mentions mm -hmm. Dr. Haver, the useless quack, shows up in Paralandra. Even as I, I wrote a letter to some a, a person about the word Oyarsa, and he wrote back, that's a real friend of his. Oyarsa okay. is this this medieval corruption of Usiarch, you know, a, a heavenly ruler. And so Lewis, he liked to have this interpenetration of the real world and the fantasy world or the world we live in and the world of imagination. And I think he did it for a particular reason. He wants you to know that if you're going to accept spiritual realities, you need to expand your imagination behind beyond that which you can see. It works for me great in out of Silent Planet and Paralandra, because when I think of angels, they're wearing a robe, they're radiant, they have a halo, they have wings, they might have a harp, they say, fear not. And so Lewis says, well, there are spiritual realities and there are messengers who are helping God or, or obeying God. And there are those dark Eldils who are trying to turn us away from God. But rather than devils in red tights and angels with wings, he has these Eldils, which you can't even see on Out of the Silent Planet. They're just footsteps of light. The people on Oyars, I mean, the people on Malacandra can converse with them and they can see them somewhat, especially the children. And that's much more imaginatively subtle than you're on Mars and suddenly this creature shows up and says, hey, would you want to help me carry my harp? He realized that how much conventional imagery prevented people from really engaging with the spiritualities of the Christian faith. The same thing as screw tape letters in Great Divorce. There's no pitchforks, there's no horns, there's no fire. It's like if you're on a journey towards God, you're making choices which either draw you closer to God or keep you estranged from God. And he dispenses with most of the traditional imagery. And I think he does that in Paralandra. I love the opening of Paralandra where Lewis gets to the cottage before Ransom, and there's this beam of light, which is multicolored, and when it speaks, there's no feeling of 
blood and lungs and air behind it. It's just mm-hmm. some sort of almost like electronic. And uh, it's it's not even directly vertical to the floor, but later we realize that it is the true vertical in the whole solar system. And yeah. it's Earth that's a little tilted. So the reason it doesn't seem vertical is all of Earth is out of slant. Mm-hmm. He was brilliant at taking traditional teachings and giving them new images and new metaphors. I remember that when I told you I read Paralandra in college, I was walking back from the library and there was the moonlight filtering through the trees. And I looked around and said, am I surrounded by Eldils? This is exactly that kind of footsteps of light or the dance of sunlight on the lake that Lewis described. And, and for me, it was very spiritually energizing. I kind of said, who knows? Maybe they're, you know, maybe even as I walk through these, these trees, I'm surrounded by these spiritual realities that, that I've been blocking out. Yeah, yeah. No, I and and I feel like, you know, most most of the I don't know, when I hear about people having mystical experiences that possibly involve angels or whatever, it right. it is more like that, right? It's 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 not so much a flesh and blood angel coming down to you and saying, right, Be not afraid, right? right? It's, right. it's it's something you almost miss, right? Right. Um, which is which is interesting. Well Lewis quotes Augustine saying that. <clears throat> the idea of visions or auditions of hearing things. Augustine says that's the lowest form of revelation, personal revelation. And he says the highest form is when the Holy Spirit speaks directly to your spirit. And it, it's imperceptible. And you can't say, oh, that was the Holy Spirit. But literally, the Spirit of God wants you to have a clearer insight or a clearer understanding. And he gives it directly to your mind. There's no process of rational analysis. Mm. Augustine said that was the highest form of mystical experience, but it's the most unprovable. It's one thing to say, look at this photograph of this thing I saw, you know, flying over the landscape, but to say, I think the Holy Spirit helped clarify my mind about this passage of scripture. And I think Lewis would go with that. He wanted these things to be subtle and he wanted this feeling of inner penetration. Walter Hooper, who was Lewis's friend and literary executor, said most of us have the very clear distinction between our religious world and our real world. Real world, you go make breakfast, you go to work, you come home, you take a nap. Your religious world on Sunday, you're inspired by the sermon, you think about it for a couple hours. He said Lewis had no such distinction. He said reality for him at every moment was very mystical and religious. And I think that shows up in his fiction. He can't write science yeah. fiction without imbuing it with a sense of spiritual realities just on the edge of perception. Yeah. Yeah, that's one thing that a when when you read the the, the passage at the beginning where where Hyoi has the sort of mystical experience with right. with Maladil, that's one thing that does kind of just, there, there's one place in JBS Haldane's critique of Lewis's space right. trilogy and he's, and he's clearly read them all and it's 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 a right. fairly penetrating like not a bad critique but one of the things that he says is well the Rasa don't really have much of a spiritual life they're basically like communists you know yeah, right. talking with Eldila is like listening to the wireless you know <laughs> And of course, that that passage where he has that grand experience with Maladil kind of kind of just dis- disrupts that that point a bit, or right. disproves it as well. well. Haldane was a brilliant scientist. He was also a Marxist, mm-hmm. and so when he saw a utopian society, he would think, "Oh, this must be Marxist based." Yeah, he wrote a famous essay called "Old Horny FRS," the the Scottish name for the devil. 
fellow of the Royal Society. His biggest complaint was that Lewis didn't respect science, he was anti-science. And Lewis wrote a great reply, which he never published. And Lewis made the point that he wasn't anti-science, he was anti-scientism, to say that we can come up with wonderful scientific and technological advances. But Lewis's science studies matter, it cannot tell us if there's anything behind or above matter. So Haldane was very witty, but I think he missed the point about Lewis. There's a difference between scientists per se. Lewis said in one of his essays, I know more scientists that are Christians than I know people in the humanities that are Christians. So he, he was, and I, but I, it's kind of his fault. He, his, his villains tend to be scientific. They swear a lot. They don't respect the sanctity of human life or, or animal life. And so it'd be easy to read him and say, oh, if you're Christian and humanities and you love nature and you love animals, then you're on the right side spiritually. But if you don't have any of those traits, you're on the wrong side. So Haldane's critique has some value to it. But I think you have to read that hideous strength to see what he's really getting at, which is using science as the, the entree for spiritual darkness to have a lot of influence in the modern world. Yeah, it seems like part, part of the reason he wrote Out of the Silent Planet was as a, as a reply to the science, scientismists. Uh, the, yeah, that's true. He was reading Haldane, and Haldane was saying in Of Possible Worlds, why can't we go to other planets and if the, if we use up this world, this is a very bad idea technologically. It'd be much more cost effective to try to save this world than to go somewhere else that has no air and no atmosphere. And we don't know what the rotation is. We don't know about the gravity. Let's try to fix this world before we decide to go off planet and start over somewhere else. But Haldane said that he thought that humans could almost evolve you know, the process of evolution. Now we can take it into control. It's been random up till now. But through eugenics with Haldane, let's, you know, get rid of the weak and the, the impaired. And some of the you, you, eugenics people actually wanted to have a kind of tender. If you're smart and strong and good looking, you have to marry somebody else who's smart and strong and good looking. And they literally wanted to eliminate the, the side of humanity, which didn't seem to be very progressive. The Nazis picked up on this when they went into hospitals in concrete countries, mental health hospitals. They would just go room to room and shoot all the patients like they are not going to contribute to humanity. And ultimately, I think that is the, the dead end of eugenics is we have to eliminate the people that are don't seem to be pushing humanity forward. So he read Haldane. He read H.G. Wells. H.G. Wells has a story very similar in the plot outline to Out of the Silent Planet, From the Earth to the Moon. There's kind of a visionary guy and kind of a business-like guy, and they get in a round globe which goes to the moon, and they have this kind of magical thing called cavorite, which, which defies gra gravity. And even Tolkien complained about that. He said, just because you say I'd at the end, that doesn't explain how they got from Earth. To right. the moon. And actually, they make a lot of trouble. They get dragged before the ruler of the moon, and he says, well, you're clearly not fit to stay on this world, so we're going to send you back to Earth. So Lewis took the storyline of From the Earth to the Moon, but he didn't like H.G. Wells, who was very committed to the idea of socialism. Ultimately, humanity is moving toward world socialism, which in his mind was a good thing. If you read George Orwell's 1984, it's not such a good thing. Right, right. Lewis was often a counterculture. 
counterpuncher. He would read something that really bothered him, like Haldane's Possible Worlds, H.G. Uh, Wells, From the Earth to the Moon. He also read Olaf Stapledon about humans are going to evolve into gods. And he says, this is dangerous stuff. You know, it's one thing in fantasy, but it's another thing to say, we have the right to exterminate other species on other planets. It's like colon colonialism taken to a whole new level. So he wrote Out of the Silent Planet, partly as an imaginative rebuttal to these people who are talking about colonizing other worlds and advancing humanity. And uh, yeah, we, 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 you and I have been conversing about Elon Musk, and we mm -hmm. don't think there's creatures that are going to be destroyed on Mars or, or Venus or elsewhere. But the whole idea that we can't make things work on our home planet, so let's use all this technology to start up on a new planet. That's a very quixotic idea. As I say, it'd be much better to fix the planet we're on rather than start over on a planet with no oxygen and no atmosphere and <laughs> no gravity that we understand. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah, I feel like if I were to write, if I were to rewrite the uh, space trilogy for now, I would, you know, have the bad guy be someone named Melon Usk. Uh, <laughs> and, yeah. Well, um, some people think that the characters are, have precedence. They think that Weston is probably based on JBS Haldane this kind of visionary scientist who says, we got to, you know, Haldane said, everybody complains about mustard gas, but it's very cheap. It's very effective. Let's go ahead and use it. War has never been pretty. So let's go ahead and use what we have, which is a pretty morally opaque way to approach warfare. So some people think that, that Weston is based on Haldane. There was a, a anthropological critic of medieval literature called Jesse Weston. And she said, oh, if you read Godwin and the Green Knight, Obviously, the Green Knight is some kind of vegetation god, and Gawain gets stronger in the morning and weaker in the afternoon. So he's some kind of a, a son, son of the sun figure. And Lewis said, this is also speculative, you know. Yep. Lewis starts out by saying, I'm sure that literature can be of service to anthropologists, but I'm not sure that anthropologists can be of service to literature. But this woman's yep. name is Jesse Weston. And suddenly this guy shows up who's very dislikable named Weston. A lot of people think that Divine is based upon a colleague of Lewis's at Modern College named T.D. Weldon or Harry Weldon. And he was very cynical. Lewis said he believed there, you know, he, he'd gotten to the rock bottom reality and there was no meaning. It's kind of ironic because the little kid who's obviously challenged at the beginning of the story is named Harry and uh, so some people think he comes up in that his strength as uh, Jules, you know, now he's Sir Feverstone or, or Lord Feverstone. And people think that Lewis was sort of subtly taking some of his own enemies and, and pillaring them in fiction. This is a good lesson for people out there. If you know somebody, if you know a creative and you belittle them or make fun of them or challenge them or be careful because you may end up as a negative character in one of their later stories that's right yeah it's like dating taylor swift you know if you're not careful there's gonna be a somebody <laughs> in my generation it was alanis morissette yeah there you go yeah didn't wanna didn't wanna uh, yeah. yeah yeah oh that's great yeah Speaking of creative endeavors and literary fiction, you have written a novel called Looking for the King about 
someone going to England to look for King Arthur's relics or prove the right. existence of Arthur, and they're helped by C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien. Right, right. We could do a whole other episode on that. Whenever I speak on Lewis and Tolkien, people say, wouldn't you love to be a fly on the wall at an Inklings meeting or one of those meetings in the Eagle and Child where there's all this wit and repartee and, and erudite conversation? And I said, you know, I've read all their letters. I've read their biographies. I think I could piece together something which sounds like an Inklings meeting. So that was the first impulse was to give people the flavor of an Inklings meeting in a pub. Yeah, my looking for the king, it involves two young Americans. They're actually looking for the spear of destiny, the spear that, that pierced the side of Christ on Calvary, Calvary. And there's all these, it's like the Holy Grail. Actually, these myths are older than the ones of the Holy Grail. That Constantine had it, Athelstane, the great English king, had it. Eventually, Napoleon tried to find it, Hitler tried to find it. So I have these two young people from America in 1940, and it was really fun to write because virtually all the dialogue is based on real letters or real essays. So there was a, someone wrote a letter to Lewis said, I'm moving to California for the climate. And Lewis wrote back and said, you know, I wouldn't move somewhere for the climate unless I were a vegetable. And so I said, oh, that's a great line of dialogue. So in my story, the young man says, oh, I'm, I'm from California. I love the climate. And uh, Lewis uses that line. Oh, that's great. So many people, I gave it out to a bunch of advanced readers. And they said, you know, a lot of your lines are funny or interesting, but they don't really sound like Lewis and Tolkien. I had to go back and add footnotes. It's one of the, novel, one ah. of the novels you'll ever see with footnotes. So when he says, I wouldn't move somewhere for the climate unless it were a vegetable, you have to flip to the back and it says, Collected Letters, Volume 2, page 241. <laughs> I was surprised how many readers, uh, they think they know Lewis and Tolkien so well, they're surprised with a new quote or a, a new interest. Lewis, in one of his letters, says, you know, everybody talks about free will and predestination, and it's such a paradox, but hey, the physical world, you know, are these these quanta? Are they light? Are they waves? What are they? Are they both? Are they neither? And so if, if we can't even figure out creation, how are we supposed to have a very specific, specific formulation of who the creator is? And that's in a letter. I put that in the novel and everybody said, Lewis didn't know anything about physics. He didn't know about particles and waves. Mm -hmm. So I had to defend myself by showing that he really did read enough science to make that analogy in a letter. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, that comes through in his, uh, I think it doesn't, although I'm not a scientist, but, but to, to an extent, the, the explanation of the Sorns about the, about the Eldila, right. we just have matter moving at different speeds. Right. right. And that's what the Eldila are. It sounds pretty Einsteinian to, to me. Yeah, I don't, it is. And I don't know enough to pronounce on it but well he knew yeah. he knew eisenstein and and weisenberg weisenberg and all those kind of people he kept up on basic physics and you're right the idea uh we to humans the eldils we can barely see them because they're very ghostly and ephemeral but to them they're so solid that our physical world is like clouds or like something very ephemeral that actually goes back to medieval theology Lewis always said the most concrete thing in the cosmos is God himself. And as you move away from God, you get more and more eth ethereal or, or wraith-like. That's why in Great Divorce, 
these characters from hell are coming to visit heaven and they can't even step on the grass. It hurts their feet because it's solid and immovable compared to them who are almost like the ringwraiths in Tolkien. Yeah, so I love how he will give you an image, but it actually has theological background and scientific background. He yeah. just didn't pull it out of the hat. Yeah, you know, it's 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 brilliant and it's so it's so readable and and clear, right? That also we've been we've been doing this this season on this podcast, Voyage of the Dawn Treader, and there are so oh, many places where right. just like in a few lines, you have probably three allusions to right. different medieval uh, exactly. you know things and and theological ideas and it's all just expressed so simply and and so and so plainly and so clearly yeah and, i agree Eustace says well in our world stars are just big balls of gas and he says well no that's what they're made of but that's not what they are so right. in narnia the medieval worldview gets embodied in a even in out of the silent planet the other passage i was going to choose besides the one with Hoyoi visiting the, the, the place of mystical encounter was when Ransom looks out at space and he says the Earth's disk was nowhere to be seen. There's comets and there's stars like jewels. He uses a lot of regal imagery and he says he almost felt like the old astrological idea of influence must be true because the radiance of all these wonderful planets was somehow he was be being assimilated. So he's kind of playing with astrology that there are influences he's playing with kind of the old hierarchical worldview that the planets are like jewels or they're like kings reigning unparalleled it's funny that lewis tried to be a poet and he wasn't that great of a poet if you read his complete poetry it's very hit and miss but he has these passages in his fiction, both Out of the Silent Planet and Narnia, where you say, that's, that's great poetry. That's a prose poem. And when I think of him first looking out the window of the spaceship and seeing space for what it is, you can literally break up the lines of prose, and that could be a beautiful poem about somebody's mm. experience of looking out at the stars. Yeah, that's so interesting. It's... It's almost like to really be inspired, context is needed, right? Like he's, when he really gets going with the Narnia Chronicles, he's writing a satire, right? And then right, it turns right. out it's beautiful romance, right? In, in, in Voyage of the Dawn Treader, when with, with Out of the Silent Planet, the thing that seems to be in some ways primarily motivating him, right? To give some sort of shape to the story right. is this desire to rebuff westernism right, right, right. then out of that just explodes all of these beautiful you know celestial uh, ideas but but it's almost like that muse that that sort of muse of a of a narrative or, or of a story or of a an idea to push back against right really yeah someone should write a book on lewis as a counterpuncher but he, his imagination was like a pearl where it gets a, a little grain of sand, which irritates it, and it keeps coating over that grain of sand. It becomes a pearl. Preface to Paradise Lost, he's very clearly going after T.S. Eliot's view of Milton. Yes. Out of Silent Planet, he's very clearly going after H.G. Wells. Experiment and Criticism, he's going after the, the Levises. So there's something about really, he said that the, the reason we need good philosophy is to answer bad philosophy. And he embodied that. He often said, 
I'm going to write some good fiction to, to answer this bad fiction. I'm going to write this good essay to answer this, this bad essay. So you can easily go through his canon and say this was written in response to something that really annoyed him. Obviously, Abolition of Man, he tells you the book he was reading that got really the green book by Gaius Antitius. Mm -hmm. We have the green book at the Wade Center. And oh, cool. Yeah, and he's got a lot of notes. You can almost tell the point at which he closed the book and went and started writing Abolition of Man. They say, when you look at a waterfall, it's not really sublime. You just have feelings of sublimity in your head. And he put confusing. And then he turned the page and it said, actually, those feelings you have in the face of a waterfall, you're also feeling the sublime. And by which they meant Grant and Lewis put confusion confounded. Because when you face the beauty of a mountain or waterfall, you feel small and vulnerable. The sublime is how beautiful that is, how magnificent, how large, how beyond my scope. You don't feel yourself sublime, like, oh, I'm so... So literally, there's two pages that he quotes in Abolition of Man. And I almost could swear he put down the book and started writing these lectures for Abolition of Man. So as I say, if you had a listener out there who wants a doctoral dissertation, look at all of Lewis's books as a response to something he read, which really bothered him. And he felt like it uh, needed to be rebutted or, you know, put into context. I love that. Maybe I'll just write a second doctoral dissertation. There you go. One of the things that I love about Planets in Peril is that it's incredibly readable. It's, it's just very, it's very clear and yeah. And, and manages to say, you know, very insightful things about, about Lewis's space trilogy while, yeah, while being incredibly accessible. Well, uh, thank you. I appreciate that. Uh, Part of what helped me was teaching journalism. When I got out of LA, ah. I started teaching journalism at Westmont up in Santa Barbara. And they say academic sentence, 25 to 30 words, journalistic sentence, 15 words, almost half. And they said, don't say neonate, say newborn. Don't mm -hmm. say mortality rose, say more people died. Right. And I really think it helped my prose to teach these students to use clear, concrete languages in fairly succinct sentences. So I have, I have a little bit of journalism to thank for the, the prose in Planets in Peril. Yeah, that's great. That's great. Yeah, you you edited. Did did you was was this recent that you edited a book with Lewis's thoughts on writing? Yeah, um, it came out last November. Yeah, on writing and writers, and what my example I just gave. Don't say mortality rose. Say more people died. That was Lewis's advice to a ten year old girl. This was a fun because I just went through all of Lewis's books, and you don't know. Sometimes he's writing a letter to somebody who asked about writing. Other times he's right in the middle of Preface to Paradise Lost and he explains to you what clear writing looks like or effective writing as opposed to academic writing. He says at one place, any idiot can write for his fellow academics. The true, the, the true mark of a writer is that you can write for the general population. Yeah. So yeah, that just came out in November. I love the book. A lot of books about Lewis. I sort of know what the analysis is going to be. So I just skip from Lewis quote to Lewis quote. In this book, it's all Lewis quotes from his letters, from his books, from all sorts of places, from his fiction. He also has really great many reviews of authors he liked and disliked. Of Jane Austen, he said, my only complaint about her novels is they're too short and too few. But that's a great one word review. 
Now, yeah. he didn't like T.H. T.H. White. He didn't like Once a Future King. And he said, these books are the products of a sad, shabby little mind. <laughs> how's, how's that for you know skewering you with a pin and putting you on the wall? Yeah. I, that. I was creating a student paper that I was unhappy with. And mm -hmm. I started to put, this paper is the product of, and I said, no, no, no. You, you can't say that to a student. You so. can't do that. can't do that. Uh, but um, once again, his advice is good, but his manner of expressing himself, he embodies what he's talking about. Yeah. Not only are we talking about good writing, I'm showing you good writing. Yeah, that was yeah. a fun project. I really enjoyed it. I think that in some ways that that leads back to the the translation that Ransom does in of Weston, where he's using so many million dollar words, buzzwords, right, right that have all this philosophical baggage packed into them and then right. ransom is saying in plain words concrete words what weston is actually saying and and yeah it's one of the great yeah one of the great moments of satire i agree i agree chesterton said the big words are not that dangerous because nobody knows what you're talking about but if you put it into small words then people see what you're talking about so weston is trying to impress the oyarsa the Archangel of Mars. And he says, we've had all these technological advances and we're moving ahead. Therefore, we have the right to exterminate inferior races. And uh, the Oyarsa waits for the translation and Ransom says, well, we pick up heavy things and throw them far. Therefore, we have the right to kill you. And yeah, yeah it's, it's brilliant satire. You take these highfalutin vocabulary words and put them into concrete terms. And suddenly you realize, you know, how unacceptable is it not the right word hideous the concepts are behind all the highfalutin language yeah well we are about out of time i'd, I'd like to okay. ask you one last question yes. if you had to pick a favorite moment in out of the silent planet other than the passage you read at the top right what would it be i love there's so many it's a hard question i let me first escapes from Western Divine and starts checking out the landscape. And since gravity is lower, the landscape is much more elevated and the plants grow high like giraffes. And everything is kind of like purple mushrooms are really tall. And I love it because I was reading a, a letter of Lewis to Arthur Greaves. And he said, I was walking last, home last night, right at sunset in a thunderstorm. And it would be totally dark and suddenly the lightning would hit the clouds and I would see these great Valkyrie clouds that were being tinted by the sunset and the lightning. And it looked like another world. And I, I, I love the passage already, but when I read the letter by, uh, to Arthur Greaves, I said, I think he's taking this aesthetic moment he had looking at a thunderstorm at sunset. And he said, that would be the great you know, terrain for a different world. So I love his first experience, even when he sees the lake, he says, you don't know what you're looking at till you know what it is. Yeah. Once again, you never know when he's being autobiographical. When Lewis was a little kid, the first time they went to the, the beach, the ocean and the Irish Sea, Lewis was terrified of this expanse of blue because he thought it was a huge, tall wave about to crash on him. And then his mother said, no, no, it's, it's going out. It's not going up. And then he, once he realized what it was, he could enjoy it. But Ransom gets to the edge of a lake and he's not even sure what he's looking at. 
And so I love how Lewis takes these autobiographical experiences from childhood and youth and turns them into really rich fictional moments. If you look at that description of his first description of Mars, he says, before everything else, he realized it was beautiful. Mm -hmm. And I just love, uh, often when people write novels, they tell you what you're looking at and then they describe it. And Lewis likes to say, there was this and there was this and there was this. And he suddenly realized this was the Martian terrain. He does that in a lot of his books. Even when Ransom is traveling away from Earth, he sees this gigantic moon. He says, wow, that's big. Wow, that's, you know, what's going on? Am I drugged? And suddenly he goes, oh, no, that's the Earth. You've been, you've been abducted. That's not the moon. That's the Earth you're looking at. Amazingly accurate picture of what the Earth would look like from a spacecraft. You know, it's that big blue marble again. Yeah. But I love it when he interweaves his own experiences into his fiction and also when he describes before he explains i love to be in suspense about what's going on here there's another great one in narnia when eustace wakes up and discovers that he has become a dragon mm-hmm. but he doesn't mm-hmm. say when he woke up somehow he turned into a dragon he says oh no i'm sitting between two dragons and when i move my left arm it moves this left arm when i move my right arm it moves and my arm hurts because he has this armband. And only slowly does he realize that he himself has become a dragon. I think that's a great narrative technique. It's much more effective than just saying, oh, when he woke up, he discovered he'd been turned into a dragon. I'm, I'm wandering too far afield. There's so many things I love about Lewis's writing. I could go on all evening. Not at all too far afield. I love that answer. That's one of the things that really stuck out to me this time through as I was reading this. Just, you know, he... he enjoys describing the landscape even in that slightly eerier part when he's on earth and 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 walking you know it's it's still it's still a nice deep description of the english landscape and then and then we get that transferred to malacandra and there are so many just rich descriptions of of a place that honestly you would not have pieced together it was mars right because so right. many of the right. even even the fiction before lewis like is it burroughs who wrote a, a princess of mars or I, yeah I yeah but uh, they they have a red planet and everybody's fighting right, right, right. <laughs> because because it's marshall and it's and and mars right. looks red and and here there's so many watercolor color well there's a there's a good uh, conversation between lewis and some other science fiction writers and he says, I knew that there weren't really canals on Mars. We talked earlier about science fiction versus fantasy. And science fiction has to say some scientific reason we can travel in time or go through a wormhole. And fantasy just says, in a hole in the ground, there lived a hobbit. I'm not going to explain right. hobbits. I'm not going to show you an evolutionary tree. Just accept it. And even magic and ropes that untie themselves are good people, but sting the ankles of bad people. Tolkien <laughs> never tries to describe that stuff. And Lewis said, I made a gesture towards science fiction outside a planet. I said, oh, well, they had, it was propelled by the, uh, you know, overlooked properties of gravity, which is a pretty lame explanation. But Lewis said, when I, by the time I got to Paralandra, I didn't bother with any science fiction sort of explanation. A, a kind of Mars, he gets in a coffin, and the, the Eldela from Venus delivers him to Venus. So he said, I finally realized I was writing fantasy, not science fiction. And I dispensed with these attempts at realism. It's interesting. I don't know if it's still true, but when I was younger. Most of the fantasy writers were often Christian. And Christians are used to taking 
uh, implausible, unbelievable things by faith. And they tend toward fantasy, including, you know, I could, I could have J.K. Rowling, who's some kind of a Christian, and uh, Madeline Lingle. Whereas a lot of science fiction writers, they're more humanistic. And if they're going to delve into outer space, they've got to give you some feeling of plausibility about outer space, time travel, space travel. And I don't know if Christians are more drawn to fantasy because we're used to believing in the evidence of things unseen, whereas humanistic writers, they feel the need to gesture toward scientific plausibility. That's just my theory. Feel free yeah. to write an article rebutting that or affirming it. I think that's absolutely solid. I think I think more and more as fantasy has become just everywhere as it's, as it's become right. you know so so popular that's that's tended not to be as 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 often the case as it as it right. once was yeah but, i think uh, you're right i think i'm thinking of more classic fantasy right being at the weight center we meet a lot of interesting people max mclean who did these wonderful plays the most reluctant con- i mean converts and uh, he does great divorce and screw tape letters mm-hmm. and andrew peterson who's written the wing feather saga they both said the people like Tim Keller said to them, we need more Christian fiction. We need more Christian theater. We need more Christian films. Everybody's writing academic stuff and apologetic stuff. And if we're going to win the culture wars, we really need to have some really gifted people weighing in on the side of imagination. So there's your challenge right there. Dr. David Downing, thank you so much for coming on and giving of your time and, and talking about Out of the Silent Planet. Listeners, if you want to hear more of Dr. Downing and you have not already subscribed to the Wade Center podcast, please subscribe to the Wade Center podcast. It is well worth it and it's just enjoyable and rich. And uh, yeah, thank you again. And I hope to have you on some other time. Great. I really enjoyed the conversation, Chris. Me too. Thank you. All blessed encounter full of joy, unscheduled on the decent fan, with here an addict of Tolkien, there a Charles Williams fan. <laughs>